What's up, everybody? You're listening to Out of the Box Podcast with your host, D-Star. Enjoy the show! What's up, everybody? This is your host, D-Star, here with... Carl Fields from Racine. Carl Fields from Racine. How you doing, man? I'm doing all right, my good man. Doing all right. Thanks for having me. No problem. So for the people that don't know you, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Well, you know, uh, like I said, my name is Carl. You know, I um, go by, or at least used to go by, Big Sebo. A lot of cats in, um, that on that forced time out right now would recognize that name as well. I identify as an ex-knucklehead turned professional. I run a day shelter in Racine. It's a program where people can come stop in, you know, pick up resources, but definitely get something to eat. It's a community space where people are welcome. I also am a community organizer for a group called Expo, which is ex-incarcerated people organizing. And that's where we do this thing that we refer to as part peer support, part civic engagement. Why? Because it takes a whole lot more than being clean, sober, and staying out of trouble to get your life back. In fact, that's just a start. If you did one of those things or all three of those things, your life wouldn't come back to you. It's just a start. So Absolutely. So let's take it back a little bit, your upbringing, and how that led you to prison. Sure. Well, uh, I'm one of those uh, young cats, uh, part of the migration uh, from Chicago originally, uh, you know, landed in Wisconsin uh, at my young age of elementary school, second grade. And one of the things that what was hard was that I went from a big metropolis of a city to a small city and it had a great feel to it, but I was encountering and experiencing a lot of things that I couldn't put a, uh, put, couldn't put a name on, couldn't put my thumb on. And those things were, you know, racism in, in many forms. And I, I talk all the time, you know, myself, a lot of us, us cats from uh, Racine, Kenosha area, we, we talk a lot about there's a lot of uh, diversity, but not a lot of equity. Who was all in the household with you? So um, I grew up as three of us, my older sister, younger brother, mom, stepdad. We come out of Chicago, been in Racine since the 80s. And I was one of those kids who paid a lot of attention, didn't speak much, you know, introverted by nature, but knew enough to know how to move well. And I took in a lot more than, you know, I put out initially, at least verbally. And that got me into trouble. So your home life, would you categorize it as a good one or was it strained in some way? Uh, well, the, the short of my home life was that I had a lot of support, uh, but I didn't have a lot of explanation. And as a young black child, as a young black man in the making, you know, because to me, kids aren't just kids, you know, they're young adults in training. And if you're not training this young man in training, or giving him the tools that he needs and and helping me to carry to both have and carry the emotional armor that it takes to take those hits that are going to come in society, then I got to figure that out on my own. So in your younger years, you had a supportive home life, but you felt disenfranchised by the community, which led you to get into trouble with the law. What are the circumstances surrounding your incarceration? Why did you get incarcerated? Uh, well, not a not a hard question. Uh, definitely a fair question. Uh, as a as a young cat, you know, I was um, street dude. You know, sold drugs, did a, a lot of other things that uh, young cats around me uh, did. Coming out of a, a impoverished scenario, you know, I wasn't in a I wasn't in a situation in my life and with my family that I didn't know we were poor. I, I knew, and I felt it. You know, I wasn't I wasn't lacking on the love that go along with being connected with people uh, who you care about and who care about you. But I was lacking on the resources that you would hope that come along with being a part of a unit. And so I felt like I had to figure that part out. And so I was in the streets early, got in trouble early 
And that led to uh, a lot of different hangups. But the fast forward part of it, my story is complicated in that um, my mother died when um, when I was a young cat, 19 years old, 20 years old at that time. And the message was heavy around, uh, you know, me being in the streets and, and my street involvement having something to do with her being killed, which was totally off and inaccurate. But, you know, I took that to heart. And, and so can uh, you expound on that? Oh, sure. I can. Well, the message, the message went over that one. I was uh, on the run already. Uh, because I was scouting for my PO. I was on paper at the time. And so everything about being a young knucklehead was coming to, uh, coming to a head for me in the process of all that. My mother died. She, uh, so in addition to her, uh, being homeless, she was struggling with addiction. And so that's one of the reasons why I run a shelter program now. And I'm so heavily invested in that because I bring to that work and I bring to that, that kind of effort, the kind of effort I wish she would have had from somebody who would have worked with and treated her with dignity and respect, regardless of her scenario. Cause as a person, you know, your personhood is supposed to be lifted up. And so I do that work for that reason. And when she died, the message was getting through, whether they meant to or not was that uh, from the law enforcement standpoint was that she was killed because of something I did in the street and they couldn't get to me. And so like I, I walked with that for months and when that came to a head. The police were coming to arrest me for being on paper and being, you know, in absconding mode and absconding status. And I shot at them and they shot back. And the police being correct. Police being, yes, those people. Right. And, and, and so what hit me about that was um, they weren't hurt. I wasn't hurt, but it, it did turn into this very radical scenario where um, it was an eight hour, about eight hour standoff. And I was arrested, um, you know, as the paperwork would say, arrested without incident. And and so part of my story in this work that I do now in restorative, you know, justice principles and practices is that they know how to do their job well and they have the tools to do so. And, and I'm one of those people in a rare scenario that managed to have that kind of an incident and keep my life because I felt like the police around me were looking at doing their job. Not to hurt me, not to get their lick back, not to be ugly, just doing the job. And that resonated on me with such humility later on in my prison term that I was like, oh, my God. I need to speak about that. So how long did you end up going to prison for? 16 years, 15 years, 10 months, you know, I round up. (laughs) Um, it's, It's one of those things that. Uh, I had no idea that I would do that much time. But at the same time, I had committed such a such a societal infraction that I knew prison was in my future. And I knew a significant amount of time in prison was in my future. Um, What I what I was hoping for was that I would get an investment of an opportunity to get my life back and do something with it. So how old were you? Uh, I was 20 when I had the incident with the police and I went to prison at 21 and released when I was 36. Kind of take me into the mind frame where you were when you first went to prison, knowing that you had 16 years to do. How did you come to grips with that and how did that affect you mentally? I guess I would say the biggest part was that it was a, it was a, it was a tough road to hoe as my, as my granny would say. Um, you know, I was a, I was a parent. Uh, I just became a parent uh, because, oh, my, wow. yeah, my daughter, you know, she was about a year at the time. My son, he was still in the belly with his mom. And so carrying that 
I was devastated in that I had just became exactly what I, you know, had prayed I wouldn't, had hoped I wouldn't, which was absent, you know, quote unquote, an absent father. And so that kind of devastation, I used that pain and, 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 you know, that is fuel to figure some things out. And so I was like, regardless of what, it, what it's going to take, I need to set a good example regardless of where I am because, you know, like my mother always said, you know, as a as a parent, when you become a mother to one, you become a mother of all to all and you become a part of the institution of motherhood. And so I took that to mean same for fatherhood. And so regardless if I was standing next to my kids or I was a thousand miles away, I was still a father. I was still somebody's father and I still needed to conduct myself like a father. What was your experience in prison doing 16 years trying to co-parent two kids? Uh, difficult. You know, some years impossible uh, for the same reasons that, you know, a lot of a lot of guys, I'm sure, who've come on the show mentioned um, there were some years that were smooth and transition. And then there were other years that were just like I didn't, you know, talk to my kids, but maybe twice, you know, maybe three letters, maybe four letters. Uh, but the 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 part about that is, is that I talk all the time, whether it was me focused on being a parent and still wanting to stay connected to my kids I had to both use that as fuel to keep going, but I also had to hang my hat of transition and my hat of recovery on something other than just being a parent. Because I, in my mind, in the same way you're in a recovery class, a treatment class, and you're talking about, uh, you know, I'm doing this for my kids, or I'm going to turn around or change around, change over because of my kids. It's like I was a parent before I went to prison. So... If it wasn't enough to keep me out of prison, how, why, or how is it enough to get me out and keep me out now? And so the individual commitment had to come uh, from me to me so that I could do all these other things. And so that was powerful for me in that I was still committed to my own transition as I did that time because I wanted to be a better person and I wanted to be more than just what the paperwork, the file they had on me said, I wanted to be with my mother who had just passed what she had hoped for, for me. I wanted to be that, but I also was tired of the hustle. I was tired of the streets and I was tired of looking over my shoulder. And I was like, I want a life that says I ain't got to do that no more. And now I need to figure out exactly what that is. And it's in the details. Now, what could that look like? And I was able to figure that out while I was in prison. So what advice could you give to brothers and sisters that's locked up right now trying to co-parent inside the institution? Right. I I would say that the parenting classes help. They give you language that you don't have um, that, you know, most of us didn't receive from our uh, from our, you know, uh, nucleus family scenario. I had that for a certain amount of time and then I didn't. Um that language is powerful and important, but that language only helps you to talk to other parents. Don't necessarily help you to talk to kids, but it does give you a roadmap. Uh, the other part is keep reaching out, keep sending letters, keep calling friends, cousins, aunties, uncles, grandmas, girlfriends, ex-girlfriends to connect with the kids and not in anger and not in hurt, but in, you know, in a positive, progressive investment kind of mind frame, um, because I, I mean, I know it's like to send a letter uh, to the address that you know of. And it feels like it's the same as sending that letter in the space because you don't get a response back. Send another one. If it didn't come back with the finger on it, you know, with the return to sender on it, send another one. You know, 
if granny, if you reach back to granny and she said, yeah, I got that message to your shorty, man. I got that little bit of money that you could send to your shorty, that outfit that you want me to pick that you picked out. I bought it and took it, you know, pick out another one, send another one, um, you know, stay connected to the latest music. Ask my shorty what, you know, what kind of music here she likes. Those sorts of steps put in your life stories alongside their stories and their experience. You know, the movie that they thought about, the latest Avengers, I have a story from my prison experience that coincides with their Avenger story. And so, yeah, I mean, to try to sync up time frames because you won't be locked up forever if that's your fate is important. And so that was my thought. So what was the book that changed everything for you? A lot of our listeners are interested in new material. What would you say that this is the book that turned the light on? I would say probably the most powerful one was the one, the very first book that slid into my hands when I when I landed at, at maximum security. I started my prison term at Wapan, and no sooner than I got there, within the hour, the older guy asked me, was I reading? Was I willing to do some reading? And he slid me a book, The Community Itself. Just like that changed my life. Powerful stuff. Because plain and simply, I mean, I guess the breakdown, the short answer of it is that it talked about the different shades of a person's personality and character and how all those are governed by the will, a person's will. And what does a person do with their will? And basically it was it was breaking it down like it was uh, it was a board of directors in a company. And it was saying, if you in the middle of some B.S., then it's because the chairman of the board elected for you all to be in that mess. And somehow the other uh, members of the board need to unelect dude and put somebody who can govern and write the ship at the head of it. But here's the thing. The other thing about it was that you can unelect that person or that personality, but you can't kick them off the board. When they send a cat to the joint, when they send me to the joint, they didn't send my my bad side of who I am to the joint. They sent all of us to the joint. <laughs> so, you know, it's, it's sink or swim. The boat wasn't sinking just on his end. The boat was sinking for all of us. And so... That book gave me some some insight that I've never let go of, man. And it was just like different aspects of who I am, you know, will always be there, good, bad, and in between. But when I allow for a person, a personality type, a character type to govern my choices and those choices make sense for all of us, for all parties involved, then I really got something. And that to me my whole concept of really being a grown man and being on some grown man ish came out of that came out of this is how you make adult choices because adult choices, grown man choices, black man choices are collective choices. You know what I mean? I had to decide that man, the choices that I make not only affect my life, but they reflect on me. They reflect on somebody like me and they have the ability to ripple through a whole lot of people's lives. And for me, that started from one book, an 80 page book called Community Itself. Appreciate it immensely that I was able to read it, man. And, you know, change who I am as a person. Books are powerful things like that. So from your perspective, uh, can you tell me what do you think the DOC is doing right? And what are some of the little known resources that incarcerated and formerly incarcerated people can do to help them get back on their feet? Well, resources, I would say that there are a few programs that are uh, invested in that are lifted up. There's like a chaplaincy program out of Wapan where they're training cats with it and helping them to get a degree of baccalaureate. 
uh, and shipping cats around uh, to different prisons to minister to each other, but also be uh, trusted messengers in a sense. We need more programs like that. It's a lot of cats who uh, find their faith and find a sense of, you know, uh, faithful purpose while, while in prison. That was a powerful program. There are other programs that talk about like the certified peer support specialist. Um, There are certifications for that in prisons, but for the most part, the programs that are powerful that can have some lasting effects, like the restorative justice program with Justice Getsky and um, Reverend Hancock, those kind of programs, regardless of how old they are, whether they're a year or 10 years old, they still operate like or treated like pilot programs. Those need to be actual full scale programs that can scale up and out to multiple uh, prison settings. I feel like one of the reasons why uh, the work isn't moving enough is because those closest to the problem are closest to the solution, but the, but the furthest away from power and resources to do something about it. And that's us. That's directly impacted people. How is it that I'm not able to play a part in that kind of solution that we want to produce? I took the restorative justice uh, piece of the puzzle that was in my prison, took all the programs that were available became a program aide and a tutor for the programs, you know, help cats to understand what it meant to transition in real time. And I put that to work professionally out here at home and, and I'm grateful for that, but that was too rare of a scenario. That was a, you know, all the stars aligned all at once kind of a scenario. And what we need is a standard issue practice of how to help cats understand that they messed up. Because the buck stops with the individual. I'll give them that. While we're on the subject of programs, can you speak to us more about Expo and what sure. it is and what your role is there? Sure. Well, uh, with with Expo, I'm, uh, you know, Expo is, uh, stands for Ex-Incarcerated People Organizing. It, it, it was given birth um, to out of uh, a, a, a whole concept that a lot of people incarcerated would know who've done time. Uh, the 11 by 15 campaign, which was the releasing of 11,000 people by the year 2015. And it was something that that number came from uh, the comparable state numbers of Minnesota uh, having half as many people incarcerated, et cetera. Now, yeah, by 2015, uh, 11,000 people weren't released, but it changed the narrative and it changed the conversation about it. Expo came about at that same time, uh, which is an affiliate of wisdom. Wisdom is a a coalition uh, organization of faith-based groups uh, and and principled based groups uh, doing the work of pushing for uh, and and dismantling uh, structural racism and institutional racism in all its forms. And one of the things that we're pushing for is a potential uh, a, a potentially heavy progressive social narrative of uh, school, not prison, uh, community alternatives, not prison how to bring people back well when they are in prison and how to get a a genuine bang for one's buck in the investment of prison. Just to circle back, I wanted you to touch on what's your role. Right. My, my particular role is that my, my title that is, is that I'm community organizer for uh, the Racine Kenosha chapter of Expo. I'm also uh, the liaison for state and out of state uh, upstart chapters and I am one of the trainers, one of the facilitators in in the in the expo, uh, you know, uh, atmosphere because it takes somebody who's been there, done that like yourself to really lay that out. Not that that's the only kind of trainer we have or the only kind of training you should get. 
Uh, but it's powerful when you see people that look like you who've been through what you've been through, who are on the other side of that coin doing the good work and fighting the good fight. And so I, I play a part. And of course, this is a part time role. So that's a lot of stuff that's just laid out uh, to have a part time job with. Uh, but, you know, there's no such thing as a part time job when this is my life and this is my transition. So, you know, I do it in a full time way. Why did you get into this kind of work and why is it so important to you? Man, oh, that's a heavy question for me because for me, I want it for my incarcerated time to matter. And I want it for all the years that I spent incarcerated to count as work experience towards something. And so I also, you know, closet nerd, you know, read a lot, see a lot. Uh, did a lot of things with, you know, I like, I like systems. I like formulas and I like to build things. I like to be a part of things being built, but I also always felt like if I had a different kind of shot in life that I probably would have done something else. So once I was at a distance from the neighborhood that I felt I had to make these choices under or in, I said, well, let's, let's do a reset. What would it be like to go after what you really want to be after. And so what I saw was that the ends didn't justify the means and the choices that I made. I devastated a lot of people in my community. I rocked my community in ways that I initially, I didn't know how to come back from. And through, you know, my own self-study or, you know, as they call it being autodidactic little school word there for you fellas. Um, when I learned that and took the programming I realized that I, and on my on that cold bunk in my cell, I had to acknowledge and admit to myself that I had played myself. Once I admitted to that, then it was like, oh, the reset became a lot easier, became a lot clearer. And the opportunity to try something else in real time came to me. And so I was able to say to my peers, nah, man, I don't want no part of that. I'm good. Right. Like, no, nah, I'm all right, man. I'm straight. And I, I could do that not from a defensive point of view, but with confidence and with a certain kind of walk to it that, you know, spiritually speaking, walking in my purpose and in my presence allowed for things that were that that aligned with that path to come into my life. And that's where it was like, man, God going to show me the way I just got to (laughs) commit. And so, yeah, I believe that I still do. I work in a church now uh, because that's what I believe and that's what I believe in. And that's what I'm invested in. If you could say one thing to the MA community, what would it be? Well, um, and, and I would say that, you know, um, the words you speak with are the words you think with. I would say that your self-talk is powerful stuff. And I would say that the programs that seem crass and slow and generic are giving cast tools on both what self-talk is and what self-talk language is and how to reshape it. Take those opportunities to reshape your own personal narrative so that when you talk to the world, you're talking to them from the new narrative, the narrative that you want to be there. The The way that you want to, to be perceived in the world is the way that you also perceive yourself. And that kind of work is heavy, intensive study of work, which means you got to give up a few things because all this is about time. You got to, you got to give up some card games. You got to give up some basketball tournaments. You got to give up, you know, a TV show or two or three. 
um, because the investment now is in these tools that you can't always carry with you. If you're going to still only carry 25 books, magazines, et cetera, then, you know, you need a library of hundreds and hundreds of those sorts of materials, which means you got to carry it in your head, which means you got to put in the work and the time and to read. You got to put in the work and the time to invest. And, you know, like I said, the words you speak with are the words you think with. So if you want to change your scenario, you got to change the language culture that you're moving in and walking in and operating in. And that's hard. I mean, it was hard for me, so I know it was hard. And I was an introvert, so that part came easy for me. But living it out loud with my peers, there were so many of them that were respecting of the change and the transition that I made, and so many that weren't. So I found myself gravitating naturally towards those who were respectful of that change and stayed away from those who weren't. It's powerful stuff. Well, Mr. Fields, I really appreciate you coming on the show. Is there anything else that you would like to say? Uh, I would I would say, hey, hit the library. You know, uh, a year before you get home, two years before you get home, three years Re-entry before you get home. Your entry does not start six months before you come home. Your entry starts the day that you come in. That's right. That's right. Please reach for tools that align with what you want to do with your life long before you ever get here. If you're trying to prepare for a release when DOC starts talking about your release, then you're on the wrong calendar and on the wrong schedule. Your release and what your release is supposed to be about started the minute the door closed on you and you started doing your bit. So I would say start investing now. Start with the end in mind. If you want the picture to look a certain way, you know, work it backwards because you know where you are right now. You don't know where you're going. So go to the end and turn around and look back and see what it takes to get there. That's what I did. Absolutely. Well, I'm your host, D star. Thank you guys for listening. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Out of the Box Podcast, an inspiring show advocating for our current and former inmates and their families in Wisconsin. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Click our affiliate link or Buzzsprout for all your podcast hosting needs. You can also support the show by clicking our support link in the description.